several years ago, I had a conversation that I've had several times, that Carrie and I both have had several times with all of our kids. Uh, this one was with our middle child, Caitlin. She was three years old at the time. She's nine now. Um, but she had been disobedient, and she'd been caught, <laughs> thankfully. And she was about to be disciplined. And in our house, that may oftentimes means being spanked. And, and Carrie and I have made it a point with each of our children to teach them that when they do something wrong, discipline follows. Yet we are not disciplining them um, out of anger. That would be punishment. And we want to follow Christ's model for our lives. So we are disciplining them for the, for the very best. We, we wanted them to understand that disciplining them was done for the reason that we love them. And we want the very best for them in life. Well, on this day, I was trying to explain this concept to a, to a three-year-old whose only concern was whether or not she was going to be spanked. If you have kids and you've gone through this process, you know, you try to have a conversation with them and they're just looking at you, nodding their head going, but I'm not going to get spanked, right? That's their only concern. And I'm trying to explain this to her and I, I get to the end and I say, as I'm concluding my little story to her, and, and I say, so... Do you know what discipline shows? What it reveals? What am am I explaining to you? And she, as she thinks about it, because this is what she's like, she really thinks about it and she says, discipline is because I've done something wrong. (laughs) And I said, no, no, that's true, but... Why am I disciplining you? The reason I'm disciplining you, what discipline shows, is it shows love. And her being this intense cynic that she is, she, she just had anger grow across her face and she went, no, discipline is not love. She just, she just, couldn't, she just couldn't wrap her brain around the concept that I could be disciplining her because of love. It was just foreign to her thought. It was foreign to her mind. She, she, couldn't, she couldn't drink it in. And, and, and for three-year-olds, they can't reconcile those two things. Discipline being love. For a three-year-old, for an immature mind, it's just so foreign to them. It's hard to, to get that for an immature three-year-old. You might get the sense where I'm going there that even as adults, we have a hard time understanding how God's discipline for us can actually be loving. We get confused by it. God brings things into our lives and we're like, what's going on? I don't understand. Make it stop. I don't want to be spanked anymore. Just let me go. Let me live my life. We, we don't understand the paradox of discipline and love working together For our good. This is why God gives us His word and reminds us in Hebrews 12 that no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Discipline equals 
righteousness and peace in our lives. Simultaneously, pain producing peace. These are paradox, paradoxes, though difficult, are a normal part of the Christian life that are seen throughout Scripture. Humility in Scripture equals exaltation. That's how the gospel works. Leadership equals humble service of those around us. Weakness, Paul tells us, that actually equals strength. Death equals life. God's word is training in us in these things so that we might grow in righteousness and peace. Because these are all a part of his all-wise, all-good plan for your life and mine. This is God's wise plan for us. Hard times produce something good in you if you are trained by them. God planned it this way because he is wise. If you want to hear a $10 theological word, you've probably heard about omniscience and omnipotence. God being all wise is his omnisapience. You can go home and share that with your friends and be like, oh, you know, omnisapient. Sound wise yourself. But God is all wise. And as we look at this concept of wisdom, we have to ask ourselves, well, what does that mean, though? What does it really mean to be wise? In A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Attributes of God, he describes God's wisdom in this way. It is God's ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. In other words, God's wisdom is knowing what is the highest and best goal and then knowing what is the highest and best means to produce that goal in his creation. When we look at God's word, that's what wisdom looks like. Knowing what the best thing is and knowing how, what the best way to get there is as well. That's wisdom. In Isaiah 40, God's wisdom is on display as Isaiah is directing our gaze to God's creation to assist us in just how glorious God's wisdom really is. He, he's, he's looking at Israel and what God has done and what he's about to do to them as he's going to pour out his wrath upon them and bring them into exile. And now he's comforting his people as God is instructing him. And he's saying, I want you to be comforted by, comforted by these truths. And one of them is God's wisdom. This is a part of God's plan. He says in Isaiah 40, 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? What the prophet here is explaining as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. That God's wisdom is so immense that even creation itself 
is trivial or simple or a small detail to God. He looked at all the creation and, and looked at the heavens and the earth and he just went, yeah, there and there. Okay, yeah, let's put that down there and measure this out, this amount of water. It was trivial to him. He needed no help. He knew exactly what he was going to do and he knew exactly how to do it. And to be sure, we are awestruck when we look at the the macro or the larger side of creation and study its vastness and its complexities. And we are blown away by it. But even more as we start to look at the micro side of creation, the smaller aspects of creation with its intricacies and the atomic structures that build everything around us. We, you look at the person sitting next to you. That person is made up of 80 to 100 trillion cells working together to allow you to hear my words, interpret them, and understand them. To allow you to pick your fingers up and go like this. You know how amazing that is? It's shocking, yet God has designed it all in his wise plan for creation. And with all of these complexities in place, think about all of those cells working together and just in a matter of hours, and two, two can separate and become one, and then start functioning together again. And then two become four, and and it just keeps going on and on. It is a marvel of scientific engineering. Yet God needed no counsel, no biology book, no anatomy and physiology class to try and figure out what's the best way to do this. He needed no guidance to create anything. In fact, he didn't even need a second attempt One time, boom, done, there it is. Just work. That's how wide our God, that's how wise our God is. We look at these things and we are blown away by the wisdom of God. But you know what is sadly hilarious about everything I just said? We are happy to leave the structure and purpose of creation in God's all wise hands. But we are not happy to leave the structure and purposes of our lives in God's hands. Things happen in our lives and we get confused. We get thrown off. Things are going in a direction. We like the direction it's going in. And then all of a sudden something comes and bam, everything changes. And we take a step back and we're like, whoa, 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 God. Are you sure you know what you're doing here? You sure you can handle this? Is this really what you had planned for me? I don't know if you know what you're doing anymore. Things were going really well. Things were all exactly the way that I wanted them to be. And then we, in our self-importance and in our confusion in our hearts and minds by what's going around around us, begin to think maybe God needs a little bit of our input into the situation. Maybe he needs a little bit of counsel. Maybe he needs us to remind him how things should go when our finances or our relationships or our health doesn't go in the direction that we want it or think it should go. You're fine to help me to go like this, 
But what about my job? What about the unhappiness I have in my relationship? What about my struggle with this or that? What about these things? Are you sure you know what you're doing? And to these doubts, God reminds us that in Isaiah 55, a verse that we all know very well, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And to this, anybody who has lived any portion of time on this earth walking to Christ, with Christ, we say, thank God you haven't left the plans of my life in my hands. If you'd left it to me, not only would I make a shipwreck of my faith, I would make a shipwreck of my life. It would be a disaster, God. Thank you that your ways are not my ways. Thank you that you are the one in control and you are the one who has made the plan that I am walking in. You control the heavens and the earth in my life and I thank you for that. God is wise. He's shown us in creation and he shows us in the cross itself. Wisdom or the wisdom that has been shown to redeemed sinners is beyond our wildest imaginations. If you turn with me to Luke 24, I want to move through this section really quickly. What's going on here as you turn there? I'm going to be looking at verse 13. What's going on there is Jesus has just died. He's been put in the ground. It's been three days. Time has passed. The Marys, the women, have gone there and discovered that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And they've gone back and told the disciples about it. And as the type, disciples listened to the story, you can read it for yourself earlier in 23, they didn't believe him. Peter got up and ran, but the rest of them were like, woman, you've lost your mind. This is crazy talk. So then two disciples get up and they decide to head back home. And they're going to walk along the way here in verse 13. And as they were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which is seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened, so it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So they're moving along and they're traveling and Jesus shows up on the scene and they look over and, and for whatever reason, they don't understand that it's Jesus walking with them even though they're his disciples. And as they're walking, Jesus comes up and, and he says to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Don't forget that. They're heartbroken by what's, gone, what's, what's happened over the previous few days. One of them, Cleopas, looks over at Jesus and says, 
Are you a stranger to this land to not know all of the things that have happened in the few days? And I love this because Jesus responds with what I think is just a hilarious response. Here he's talking to Jesus and he looks at him and goes, what things? What are you talking about? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Hey, why don't you tell me all the stuff that has happened? And then Cleopas goes on and shares with them how Jesus had been crucified by the chief priests and laid in the ground and, and then the women had come to them and, and told them that he was, the tomb was empty and, and they're just lost and brokenhearted over everything that had happened. They go on and they say, we had hoped, hoped that this was the Messiah, that this was going to be the guy who was going to come and kick off Roman oppression and, and bring in the kingdom and we were going to sit by his side and we were going to rule together and just everything was going to be great. He was going to be right there with all the power and I was going to be sitting right there with him and, and we were just going to be happy. You should have seen this guy. He's healing people and he's creating food and just think he would have, we could have, what he could have done to Caesar if he had just lived and now he's dead. And we don't have any more hope and our hearts are broken. They had a plan. They had an understanding of Jesus. It just wasn't God's plan. As we go on, Jesus goes on to open their eyes in verse 25, if you drop down there with me. He says, Then he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory. And beginning at Moses, meaning Genesis, and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He went through all of scripture and he basically laid out God's plan for them. And you think about how shocking and awesome this must have been. As Jesus Christ himself opened his own word and displayed for these two men a plan far above their feeble wisdom could have conceived of. It was like Jesus is showing up like the parent. And here's these two men like the three-year-old. And he's getting down on his knees and he's saying... Let me help you see this. Let me explain this to you. This isn't by chance. This was God's plan for your life. Jesus, the Messiah, was to come and he was supposed to die. And he was supposed to enter into his glory as a result. This was always God's plan from the beginning. And it was no pint-sized plan of simply kicking off Roman oppression. It went far beyond anything you can imagine. God's wisdom, his wisdom-filled plan was not to be of a high and mighty tyrannical king who would oppress the world, but of a lowly and humble servant king who would lay down his life for the world. 
Could you hear Jesus' words as he goes to Isaiah 53? And he says, this is what this king was to come to do. He was to be despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we did, as it were, our face, or we hid, as it were, his fa- our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of uh, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is what God's Messiah, God's anointed one, God's king would look like in his first coming. This was his plan. And it was shocking to his disciples. Shocking to them. But something something changed in their hearts. If you're still with me in Luke 24, something happened. They arrived where they were at. They invited him in. They said, don't go any further. It's really late. Hang out with us. Have dinner with us. They sit down. Jesus breaks the bread. Somehow, supernaturally, their eyes are not open. And they went, you're Jesus. You're here. And then Jesus is, bam, he's gone. And now they're talking with each other and they're thinking of everything that just has transpired. They're drinking it all in and they're remembering how sad they were and the, all the plans that they thought were God's plan which was really their interpretation, a faulty interpretation. And now Jesus has revealed it all to them. And in verse 32, they say to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Their sadness had turned to joy when they saw God's plan revealed. His plan in redemption revealed. And 2,000 years later, oh, how we rejoice that nothing has changed. As God reveals his plan to us, as he shows us the cross and shows us creation and says, do you see those things? That was my plan. Don't forget before the foundations of the earth, I laid out a plan for you as well, that you would be sitting in this room this morning, hearing my gospel, understanding that I have laid down everything to give you life. Trust me. Place your faith in me. And as we meditate on the infinitely wise plan of God, our hearts cry out with the Apostle Paul as he wrote, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. We fall down in awe at the greatest plan executed for the greatest goal that could be conceived of that God would create a people out of sinners to bring glory to him. Through faith. Not by works, lest any man should boast. It was done by faith in what Christ did. And we rejoice. 
Now, I know we love stories like this, and we love them because in the end, because we all love the end, well, most of us love the end of stories where everything is wrapped up with a nice little neat bow, and we understand everything that happened, and everything makes sense, and we feel good about ourselves, and we feel good about the story and how it worked together. We love them because we're left with a deep sense of assurance that our Heavenly Father and His redemptive plan knows every situation that we face in life, no matter how confusing it might be. He knows the greatest goal of each situation, and He knows the best way to achieve those goals. And we like to hear those things. We like to be comforted by those things. But the reality of life doesn't always leave us feeling so secure. We also know that to be true. I think that is true because sometimes we are quick to agree with Scripture when it tells us that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and and ever-present. We we read these things in Scripture, and, and by His grace and by the working of His Holy Spirit, we agree and we confess and we assent to all of those things. But when we are hurting, and I mean deep, deep hurting in our souls, when pain seems to reign in our lives, when, this, like the psalmist says, the mountains are falling into the oceans and the, and the seas are roaring and it feels like we're about to be swallowed up by our trials and by our suffering. When we come to that place, we do, we do begin to question the goodness of God. We begin to question how wise He is. You see, we may be able as faithful believers to quickly answer the questions of life's obvious struggles. You look at sin in the world and, and you, you might easily point somebody to Genesis and look, say, look, see, sin came into the world. Adam and Eve sinned. And, and as a result of sin, God had to pour out his punishment. And so he cursed the world. And so all the failings and all the struggles you see in, in the world, they're all a part of Adam and Eve's sin. And sometimes he's working on you, on your individual sin. And, and, and maybe a person could look at that and go, oh, I, that kind of makes sense. I can understand where you're coming from with all of that. But what about that particular type of pain? You know, the type of pain that seems to come out of nowhere. It seems to have no reason behind it. It seems to have no purpose in it. The kind of pain that changes your life in an instant. And it causes you to question everything you've ever built your life upon and found security in. What about that type of pain? How do I understand that? What do I do with that? It's real. 22 months ago, we were in Aspen, and my, my mom had uh, graciously taken us out there for a family vacation, and my wife had been a runner. If you don't know her, uh, she, she was training for a half marathon, and she'd, she'd been running for months and months, you know, anywhere from five to seven miles a day, and not in this easy place like Southern California. We're talking about in Colorado, where it's hard. Real running happens there running through Guard of the Gods, and it's hilly, and it's thin air, and it's just, it's just rough. And she'd been doing this for months and months and months. And one time as we're sitting there, as she normally did, got up, 
put on her shoes in the morning and she goes out for a run as we're in Aspen and she comes back like maybe five, ten minutes later. I said, what happened? Why are you back so quick? She said, I don't know. My right leg doesn't seem to be working very well. Well, That's weird. About a day and a half later, we're sitting in the, the condo that we were in. And she says, I can't close my right hand. This is weird. I don't know what's happening. Within three weeks, we were rushing to, to the hospital because she was continually, over and over again, stopping to breathe. Her body was so consumed with pain, she would pass out from it. She would, she would be laying there, and I'm not talking about just like once in a while, like every couple of hours, she'd be laying there, and her entire body would seize up in pain, and she would scream out in pain, I'm doing this because this is what she would do. She's laying there, she'd pull up her arms, and her body would come forward, and her knees would come up, and she'd yell out in pain, and this would go on for maybe 10, 15 minutes before she would just pass out and lay there. That would, she would stay there for about maybe 40, 45 minutes, get up, look around, and then anywhere from 15 minutes to two hours later, start the whole process all over again. And this went on and on and on. And 22 months later, it goes on and on and on. Now, by the grace of God, these episodes don't happen as often as they did in the first seven months. They did happen for about seven months. She would have four to 10 of them a day. I had to lay next to her where she would go through 22 hours straight of just episode after episode after episode. And what do we do with that type of pain? What do you do when you know? I know God's word. I've been studying it most of my life. The majority of my life, I've been studying it. And I say, this is God's in God's hands. But I hate it. I don't want it anymore. I don't want this to continue on. And, and as we went through those first several days of doing this, it didn't get better. It actually got worse. We went to the hospital and we were sitting there and, and they go through and they start doing all their tests. And we have a doctor that comes in and says, you know, you really need to go up to Denver. This is a good hospital, but they, you know, the University of Colorado Hospital in Denver, that's, that's where they have the real equipment. They can, they got a lot of doctors up there and they can really, really help you more than we can. I'm going to let you go because we can't help you. And so they let us go and we went home and we sat there. And as the night went on, slowly Carrie became non-responsive. She wouldn't talk. Carrie's mom, by the grace of God, was able to get there in a day. Robin Gammy was with us because she lived in Colorado also. She's just down the street from us. And, and, and she's just sitting there, and I'm staring at her. And in my experience, I unfortunately have seen some people pass away from different things. And, and I'm watching this woman that I love, and I'm talking to her, and she won't talk to me anymore. And I'm trying to spoon water into her mouth because she can't suck it through a straw, and she won't open her mouth anymore. And I'm staring at her and thinking, God, she's going to die. She's going to die right now. We're sitting on the couch. What do I even do? The hospital told me to leave and to go someplace else. I don't know where to go. I'm calling, I'm calling Dan. I'm calling Robin. I'm calling every hospital that's associated with our area going, what do I do? And finally, Dan, as I was upstairs, just losing my mind. I'm an incredibly calm person. 
Uh, I, I never get very high or very low about anything. And I was just losing it. And Dan walks up and goes, you need to take her to the hospital. This isn't good. And if you know Dan Cammy, when he says something like that, he knows everything. You trust what he says. And I'm like, what do I do if I call an ambulance? They're just going to take her back to the same hospital. And I went, that's it. I'm going to put her in the car and we're going to drive to Denver right now. And you can't imagine the pain that comes along with it. I shouldn't say that because in a crowd this size, maybe you know exactly what, understand exactly what I'm saying. But walking down to an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old, and sitting them down and praying with them and saying, Go upstairs and say goodbye to mommy because I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. They know me. The other ones know me. I don't lie. They understood. They'd been watching her for days go through what she was going through and they went, okay. And they went up and said goodbye and I picked her up and I put her in the car Robin jumped in the van with us and we drove to Denver. And I was driving in the car. This is coming from a man who spent years praying to God, please God, whatever it takes to bring me closer to you and bring glory to yourself, do it. I don't care what it is. To whatever extent you want to bring me to, to bring glory to your name and to sanctify me from sin and and just live a life fully dependent upon you. Do whatever that is. And I'm driving in the car and I'm praying and I'm telling God, except for this, not this. I don't care what your plan is. You're not allowed to take her. Except for her. She's the only one. God says, what about your kids? And them too. Throw them in. You can't do anything to them either. And the people that are really, really close to me, you can't do anything to them either. Everything except for these things that are really, really important to me. You can't touch these things. I don't care what your plan is. I'm going to tell you, and I pray you'll listen. When we as Christians are faced with these types of struggles, answers may be unclear about why things are the way they are, but our response should not be. I have wavered back and forth with months for months and months. For, it's weird to say it for years now. With this same topic. Except for this. Not this. And I've struggled. And God has been faithful to transform my heart where I could sit in the bathroom this morning saying, God, I don't want to say these things. Make it true in my heart. Don't make it words that come out of my mouth. And God bless me. He's blessed me to say, I'm getting you there. It's true. It's okay. You're letting go. You're, you're laying your wife and your life and your kids and you're laying them down before my plan and trusting. That's what our response should be. John Newton once wrote, one of the marks of Christian maturity which a believer should seek 
is an acquiescence, that's an agreement without any protest, a full submission in the Lord's will. Our own limited views and short-sighted purposes and desires may be and will be often overruled. But then our main and leading desire that the will of the Lord may be done must be accomplished. How highly does it become us both as creatures and as sinners, Newton writes, to submit to the appointments, the plans of our Maker, And more than that, how necessary is it for our peace? Our peace is founded in faith. Faith in an infinitely good God's infinitely wise plan for our lives. Faith. Trust. It may be at times an angry faith. It may be a mournful trust. It may be a confused faith. But it must be faith. As I said on Tuesday night to the youth ministry, it may be small faith, but small faith is still faith. Don't forget that. It comes by the grace of God. And if you have it, trust in Him. It's small faith in a big God. Keep running to Him, not running away from Him, no matter how much you desire to. Faith in the plan of God in the midst of a trial will bring you the peace that you want. Christ has graciously reminded us of this fact from the very beginning, the very beginning of his word, of his redemptive plan, the very beginning of your lives, if I brought you up here and we could share testimony and testimony after, over, after every believer of how God's plan worked out for my good, and I wouldn't want to do it again, but it was his plan. And I love how he used it. I remember driving back from the hospital one time with Robin and she's sitting there as Carrie's sitting next to me in the back of her car. And she says, I want you to understand this and don't forget this. And it was, it's words that have really sustained me throughout this. Don't forget who chose this for you. God chose this for you. I didn't choose it. She didn't chose it, choose it. Our kids didn't choose it. He chose it and he chose it for our good. He planned our lives for our greatest good, that we would bring glory to him and that we would find rest in his plan for us. So where are we to go with all this? How do we take this knowledge that God has a wisdom-filled plan in place for each one of our lives and then apply it to our lives? I'm gonna mention two things quickly and I've already mentioned them. Acquiescence and agreement faithfully acquiesce to God's plan. And what I mean by that is not, well, is to do it over and over again, but I mean by, what I mean by that is in full faith, faithfully acquiesce to God's plan for your life. Submit your plans to God, not just some of them, all of them. And this is where you will find out whether or not you are submitting and acquiescing to God's plan. Make a list in your head of everything that you can think of 
that you would label except this over top of it. Oh, you, I want your plan for my life, God, except for my retirement fund. I really need my retirement fund. You don't understand. You know how hard I've worked for that to get to this place, to get this kind of security? You can't touch that. You can't touch my finances except for those things. I'll trust you with everything else except for my family, except for my Help, you know how hard I've worked to look, to feel like this, not me, obviously, (laughs) but for some of you out there, you know how hard I've worked to get to this place and now randomly you just take it from me? Everything except for that, that is not trivial, that is very real. Everything except for what I truly identify myself as. A healthy person, a mom that's been big in our house. My wife identified herself as a mom and not just a mom, this type of mom. So you could take the other stuff except for this. We live like that as well. I live like that. Not just did I put under family and friends under the accept this category, And also my ministry. God, you've given me a gift to do this one thing. I've spent most of my life studying this to do this. And now it's all gone. I'm just going to take care of my wife. I can't do anything in the church anymore. And now we've got to move back to California after we've established ourselves in Colorado and all these plans have been put into place and and it's moving in the direction that we've been waiting for it to happen and it looked like your plan and now that's just done? What do you want me to do with that? God, I trust that's your plan and I'm telling you, this is how I've prayed many times. I trust it's your plan. You know what? I don't care what your plan is anymore because you can have everything except for this. This, I want this to look like what I want it to look like. If you're smart or an athlete or whatever it is you identify yourself, ask yourself, have I put this in the category of accept this? And then take all of them, whether it's one or a hundred, and relinquish them to Christ. That doesn't mean you give up on your plans. Planning is good. What it means is you submit your plans to the plans of God. Offer them up. Here's my plans. I just do it with an open hand. I'm not clenching them close to me. Here they are. Do what you will with them, because I trust you. Follow Jesus' model of not my will, your will be done. And remember, he's been through it too. You want comfort? Go to the one who knows best how to comfort you. He understands where you're coming from. Let me clarify very quickly. It's not that anything that I'm mentioning is a bad thing. Those things aren't bad. It's just that he's infinitely better. Those plans that you're finding your salvation and security in could be good. They may be even good things. He's just better than all of those things. And with Christ at the center of all things, if you acquiesce to him and his plan, trust me, all of those things are just going to get better. I don't love my wife more today. I just love her better now. 
as I laid down my wife before the plans of my God, my love for her grew in ways that I never thought they would. And I'm telling you, that was part of Christ's plan. I love ministry. I, was, I love the part of ministry that I was in in Colorado. But I can't explain to you how blessed I am to be here, to be part of the children's ministry, to be counseling with people in this room, to be doing the ministry that God has called me to do, and by his grace, being able to do it. I love ministry. It's just better when it's submitted to God's plan first, rather than my own. Acquiesce to the plans of God but also faithfully agree that his plan is the best plan. As I said, this is not easily done. And maybe you've been where I have been. Or maybe you are where I have been. Said, except this, I don't care what you're doing anymore. Maybe that's where you are. You can, you can, you can acquiesce to a plan without being all that happy about it. We've all seen kids submit with what we want to do with their bodies, but not with their hearts. And maybe you're in that place, and I'm telling you, what I've learned is that one of the awesome results of God's plan, when he reveals them to us as his plan unfolds, and I faithfully agree with them, is I get to know truly who I am. I, am, I was far more capable of overcoming sin than I ever knew when I finally agreed with God's plan for my life. When I stopped grumbling as I walked around the house, and there's nine of us living in the house. Uh, my my in-laws have graciously brought us in so we can be in California where, God, where Carrie could get her treatment and, and be at a lower elevation and away from the things that were harming her in Colorado. And, and, and as they opened the doors and let us live there, man, I was just a grumbling bear. And I was struggling with sin. It was swallowing me up. And as I agreed with God's plan, he slowly began to transform my heart and help me to realize Paul's words, when I am weak, then I am strong. Now I can overcome. Now I say things as I'm praying and go, I know God, I am more patient than what I appear to be because your Holy Spirit's at work in me and you've brought me to a place where now I know how much I depend on you and that I depend on you every moment of every day. I agree with what you are doing. Make me into who you are making me into. Use your plan to transform me. As we acquiesce, we see who we are in Christ. And more importantly than that, as we faithfully agree, we get to know him for who he truly is. And that is the greatest gift God can give us. A vision of Christ, an experience with the Holy Spirit that brings glory to God in our lives. It's what we were created to do. We see us for who we are, and we see him for who he is. This is a huge aspect of redemption, and it is God's plan for you. Please, please, please don't settle for any lesser joy. Your plans will bring you joy, but they won't bring you as much joy as his plan. 
It will be lasting joy. Your plans may bring you, bring you temporary satisfaction, but his plan brings you eternal joy that you can secure your life on. Don't settle for anything less. He has a plan for each person in this room. He's written your life out. Trust in him. He's orchestrating all those things. As Romans 8.28 says, all the good things, all of the bad things in your life, he's putting them together in just a way that you would find the greatest amount of joy as you are conformed to Jesus Christ. Don't ignore them. Rest in him. It's where hope is found. It's where peace is found. May we do that together as a body, hand in hand, trusting and exalting our God and Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we look at these truths. We look at creation. We look at Jesus Christ and the cross and your plan of redemption for us. We look at our lives, Lord, and we see the glory of your wise plan unfolding. We don't always see the the end from the beginning. We don't see the end from the beginning, only you do. We don't always see what you are accomplishing through your wise plan. But I ask, Lord, in the midst of that uncertainty, you would cause us to trust in you. Cause our faith to increase even now as we're sitting in this room. Cause us to open our hands before you with our plans in them and say, God, these are yours. Do as you will. Cause that faith to resonate in the hearts of those around us so they would be drawn to do the exact same thing for your glory and your joy. Cause our faith to resonate in the hearts of those around us by your mercy to draw those who are walking in darkness with no light in their hearts, without any knowledge of your plan, to bring life to them. And Father, I ask if there would be anybody in this room who doesn't know you, who doesn't understand these words, who doesn't understand the cross and the life and the joy that comes with it, open their hearts and cause them by your power and your might to lay their lives in your plans and to surrender their own. I thank you, Father, the work for the work that you have accomplished in each person's heart here this morning. And I ask that you would cause it to continue to increase throughout the week. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.